And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, howdy there, content marketers, and welcome to the DECA episode, episode number 10 of This Old Marketing. If you end up liking the show, please do consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher, links to which you can find in our show post on, and I'm very excited to announce this, thisoldmarketing.com. We've grown up, and Joe and I now have our own little domain, thisoldmarketing.com. As always, I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Joe Polizzi, the Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, AFC, NFC Championship Mr. Master of Content Marketing, how are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. So, well, since you brought it up, do you have uh, picks for today's game? I Well, I have hopes for today's games. Um, I am very, very hopeful for Peyton Manning because I'd like to see him get another ring. Um, and I think he is probably on his last legs, uh, as it were, or last neck, as it really is. Um, and I think I would love to see him win, and I just don't need to see the Patriots win another yeah. game. Um, How can you not root for Peyton? Yeah, I mean, I, th- yeah, I, mean, I just yeah, want exactly the guy right. because he's done everything, and you'd hate to have that hanging over his head that he couldn't win the big games. You know, I just that's tired right. of it. That's right. And then I have to, because I'm a Cowboys fan, I have to root against the 49ers. And um, and so I'm hopeful for the Seattle. But quite frankly, I that's the one I don't care a lot about. Well, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about the, you know, I said, who are you going to pick for the game, Seattle or San Francisco? She said, very assertively, Seattle. And I said, well, why is that? She said, because Alaska Airlines ran that cool deal where everybody was that's going to wear Seattle uniforms got on first. Uh, for for whatever Alaska Airlines flights last week, and I said, "Well, that's a good enough reason." <laughs> there's a good reason. That's, that's there's it. a good reason. So that's well, there's what... also that there's that deaf guy too. The deaf they they told that story across a, a few uh, television networks last last week. The he's the deaf uh, fullback, and uh, he's got it's a great story too. It's a it's a wonderful story. I missed that all. Into, I missed that all together. I'll have to check it out. I had no. Yeah, idea. it's wonderful. It's a wonderful. He's he's been deaf since uh, he was a kid, and kind of grew up with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because of it, and taught himself to read lips and so they actually showed a few plays where Russell Wilson actually turns around and when they're changing the play at the line he mouths the play to him and he can read the lips and all that kind of stuff and he's quite proud of the fact that he's got like two false starts on him his entire career because he's actually watching for the ball to move to know when to move so it's just like that just like the guy in the movie replacements with Keanu Reeves yeah that's the same exactly right yeah exactly right exactly right and and since and since uh, Eminem's uh you know hit song the monster mentions Russell Wilson as well you gotta think (laughs) right you gotta think that the money's on Seattle right that's right well there's yeah and there's that and then with the and then with the Peyton thing with the Omaha Omaha thing right that you know so the city of Omaha coming out and saying that they're that they're that they're going to host him or whatever. So I guess you heard it here. It's Seattle versus Denver for the Super Bowl. There it is. There we go. There it is. All we'll right. see you next week if we're actually right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to the news um, as we are now three minutes in. Um, and the first in the news is is from our good friends at Contently, Shane Snow and company. They raised $9 million um, to bring their total to $11 million. That's a whole lot of cash to go do some content marketing with. Um article in ad age the sort of announcing it it was all over the news actually and i think my biggest takeaway from that is just a continuing the continuing story of how fast this space is really growing and how much money is really flowing into the technology here both from an acquisitions uh, uh the side of things as well as just the venture side of things um i thought the interesting quote from Shane, who we both know, um, and is he's, you know, and he's passionate about journalism for sure mm-hmm. and passionate about writers, is he really wants to become what he called the plumbing uh, of the industry. Did you have, a, did you have a, a take on that? It's interesting. I can't tell. I mean, you and I have been in meetings together where we've heard that from a number of companies. Yeah, exactly. And, and here it is, Shane's coming out on, on that age saying uh, that they want to be the plumbing. And of course, he mentions, uh, you know, two other companies, Percolate and NewsCred, that are trying to do the same thing. I mean, what I took away from it is, you know, we don't technically have a native advertising article this week that we're going to be talking about, but he mentions in this, and I think one of the reasons why they're getting this additional funding is they're seeing an increased amount. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, Contently was doing great. They were seeing amazing demand, but now it's taking it up a notch because they're, because this whole native advertising's play, and he's getting business from publishers as well as brands, 
and now they're just you know obviously they're they're putting money into the system and making this work and i don't know i think a couple things i just want to mention first of all contently has been a supporter of cmi so i want to make sure uh that we we put a little little disclaimer out for that uh but i think the other thing is for those people that don't know contently it's it's basically if you're looking for content creation in some way you can go to contently contently will will match you up with a journalist or a, a series group of journalists to get your content marketing done right they have uh some technology behind that and it was a, <laughs> a long time ago uh i launched a company <laughs> very similar to this and and shane's been uh been much more successful than i was with it so i mean i don't know I mean, besides the fact that here we go i mean what did you take something big out of it it's just kind of um you know putting a stake in the ground and saying yeah we, we've been seeing this and, and here's just another indicator of what we're seeing in content marketing well, I think it's the first of the new year that is of any size anyway, and, and it's, you know, I think, just to your point, here we go, right? I mean, this is the, you know, the first and certainly not the last that we're going to see of these venture capital firms putting money into the space. You know, I to 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 what you were saying earlier about the, the, the platform against Percolate and NewsCred, it's like, if you look at those three solutions, and it's interesting that they the three of them and others are brought up almost in every article and they mm-hmm. do very very different things and that's where i think there's a real there's a real gap right now is that there's a real confusion in the market in terms of and i think even among some of the companies that are actually doing this stuff as to what problem they're actually solving well if you i mean you talked about this last week where what was it the uh the super graphic that what's the guy yeah. scott brinker put together yep. scott brinker I mean, yeah if you say you're going to do the plumbing for content marketing, that raises like a thousand questions. Like, what does that mean? Exactly. And because well, how exactly. many different problems are we trying to solve and how many different integrations? Are we talking about internal and external? Are we talking about, are we working with agencies and writers? Is it visual? Is it textual? Is it, you know, what the heck are we talking about there? And I think the thing that I think is funny and it's just interesting is, and I guess here's my question. Is Contently an agency that just uses technology at the forefront of their solution, or are are they a technology company? <laughs> well, I can tell you what they're going to say now. <laughs> you know, now that they've got Friday afternoon board meetings to go attend to. They're a technology company that needs to scale very, very quickly because they got a big old honk and pressure on them now to actually do something at scale. So they're, I mean, like it or not now, they're going to market themselves as a technology company that's going to help people scale this. You know, it'll be interesting to me. One of the things when we did the briefing with them was how focused Shane really is and the strategy really is on helping the publisher side, the journalist side of the business rather than the marketer side. And I think they would say that they're equally trying to solve both, but how much of their tools are really focused on helping workflow um, within the publishing side of the business and within the journalism side of the business is we'll see if they continue down that path and get deep there or whether they're going to try and be sort of all things to everyone. And, and slap my mouth uh, there for – and Shane's probably going to send me a note on that one. How dare I compare them to an agency? <laughs> the, EBITDA mul- the EBITDA multiples on agency right. versus technology company are just a little bit uh, Just a little days. different. Just a little bit different. Uh, but congratulations yes. to him. Good friends of ours and uh, glad to see it happening. And like you said, kind of the first of the year, and, and here we go. That's exactly right. Well, speaking of EBITDA and valuations and all of that, there was a w- – amazing piece i thought um in the news this week um about well <laughs> about a topic we seem to talk talk a lot about here which is forbes um and some of their actual numbers that you know from a sales perspective from where they're actually making their money and how the valuation might not be everything that uh we thought it was well, you, you sent me this article well this this is I don't care if you are a marketer, a publisher, or journalist. You got to read this article. And Ken Doctor does a great job with uh, uh, Neiman Journalism Lab and putting this this fantastic thing together. And really takes um, you'd almost consider it insider information. And they but they put it all together as Forbes has come and and put the groups together to say, hey, we're for sale. They have all the numbers in here that talks about the value of Forbes. And I wanted to get your take on some of these things. But basically what we know, and if you scrolled all the way down to the bottom of this thing, 
what they're saying is is that you know Forbes is looking for a four hundred million dollar price tag. We learned a couple things off of that. They they basically had fifteen million dollars in earnings in two thousand twelve, which is where they base all these numbers off of two thousand twelve numbers. We know in two thousand thirteen that about twenty to twenty five percent of their advertising revenue are comes from content, native ads in some way. So that's interesting. I want to get your take on that. But here's what what just kind of blows me away. If you if they really expect four hundred million, uh, that means that you're looking at about twenty to twenty six times EBITDA multiple <laughs> of valuation. Speaking of technology companies, <laughs> of valuation. Which, by the way, yeah, not even technology companies right, get today. Or exactly. this is you know your your Twitter valuations where you just don't know what to value. <laughs> I guess that that's my question. I wanted to get two takes from you. One is you know what do you think of that twenty to twenty five percent number of native advertising in there and. And the second thing is, let's just talk about the valuation of this. And, and I think there's something deeper as it comes to, you know, content marketing in itself. Do you have a take on either of those? I do. Well, the, the, the you know, the, the, on the quarter of its revenue coming from the brand voice or native ad space, I think that just speaks volumes about where we are in terms of how publishers are starting to look at how they monetize their brands, you know, not even their space, right? Let's talk just how they monetize a brand by either launching new channels, launching um, space that will have long form content within it and trying to leverage what, you know, the brand, because let's face it, that's why people are doing this because of the Forbes brand. It's not because of necessarily how many viewers um, or subscribers they have. It's because I can go along, you know, SAP and, and the, the folks that are taking advantage of that are, are leveraging the fact that it's a very niche focused audience um, and is, you know, is leveraging the Forbes brand to, you know, to some extent. Now, what we didn't say is how, what kind of success that these brands are having out of brand voice. And that's a whole different conversation. But to me, it's, it's, it just speaks volumes to how fast that area is growing and how it's transforming the, the, the publishing industry. The one number that I took away, which was really interesting, was the, the profit. Out of all that revenue, they made a million bucks. And the interesting thing to me, we talked about whether it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think we talked about you know when Forbes was, when they announced that they were going up for sale. And you said something really interesting. You, you were talking about how you wouldn't be surprised if a brand actually bought them, right? So if some financial services company mm -hmm. or some other brand and Intuit or somebody like that could could come in and buy the brand and run the magazine. And the interesting thing to me is as a standalone business, I look at that and go, yeah, a million dollars profit off of X number of dollars of revenue isn't that impressive. But as a marketing channel, if I can make a million bucks off of a marketing channel, well, now that's something that's pretty interesting, right? Well, I think there's a couple. Th First of all, if you are just looking at this model and you are a media company and you're going to buy this for, I think the last thing that they said, the investment company said was somewhere between 300 and, I mean, you know, there's a three, oh, 350 million and 475 million financial times reported that the price could be somewhere between that. Let's be realistic. There's no media company no. on the face of the earth that will right. pay that. Because exactly. it doesn't fit in the media model, but okay, let's let's put all that aside and say, okay, well they're 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 pumping out some cash out of this, they're pumping out some earnings, but let's be an outside brand like you mentioned, like for whatever, right? It could be Lexus, could be Intuit, could be American Express, could be any of those companies, and say, well, what if we then were able to generate product sales on top of that and increase, the, let's say, the acceleration of velocity of leads. Uh, because of the the Forbes name and the influence, then you're thinking, oh, okay, well, now I've got, you know, we're generating cash on the side, kind of like Red Bull does with Red Bull Media That's House. Right. They're generating revenue off of the content, and we're going to add sales from a product standpoint. Then you could make the case sort of like maybe Jeff Bezos did to, for overpaying for Washington Post. There's another play there. There's another play yep. there, and we just don't know what it is yet. Do, do you agree with that? I do, absolutely, because you're not – and then you, on top of that, you're getting – an operational unit, you know, you're instantly, uh, you know, you sort of instant creation of an operational unit to do content marketing. Yeah, content, that, content factory yeah. or whatever you want to exactly. call it. They have it That's in right. place and, and maybe one of the better ones in the world at, at doing this influencer type model integrated into a traditional publishing, publishing format. So. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I think the, I mean, the, I'm trying to figure out the whole native advertising thing because we say, okay, well now tw let's say 25% 
of what Forbes is doing in 2013, it'd be greater in probably 2014, is on native advertising. We covered last week that Facebook, that which blew me away, 60% of their advertising comes from native ab- ads in some way. And that's, I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing is, is really getting interesting. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know how long. I just, I guess my prediction for this would be if, if Forbes wants to wait out and get their number, they're never going to get it from a media company. It's going to have to be from either some billionaire that has money right. burning in their uh, pocket or something like that, or a brand that would look at the value outside of just the cash that it's thrown off. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's the that's exactly right. Well, speaking of the traditional media and where it plays. There was a really interesting article that I read this week on Media Post, and it was a take on TV advertising, actually, um, you know, sort of switching complete platforms here. And, 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 and the, the, the sort of the, the thrust of the article was TV advertising and why it's not dying. And this is, you know, this speaks to, to all the stuff we were talking about last week with the sort of reaction to the, to Mark Schaefer's content shock and sort of the the fragmentation of audiences and and all of that stuff that's going on and it was just a really interesting article and it was and the the two things that interested me and I want to definitely get your take on this is there was one piece that I really really agreed with and then one piece that I didn't and um, basically he makes three points in the article which is one TV usage is actually up year over year and has been for the last few years and is projected to continue to go up um, the second was that people are actually making money. They're actually getting results out of television advertising. And he actually names a few brands there, including Starbucks and Pepsi and a couple of others. And so television advertising is still effective. And then the last point he makes, was this is the one I disagree with, actually, is where he talks about how that TV and Internet protocols um, aren't likely to converge until about six or seven years from now. And I think it's going to happen a lot faster. And yeah. So the, 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 the two things that I'll just mention here is on his first point, um, you know, about TV usage isn't down. That's something that I think is really, really important for us to consider as marketers, because as we continually say about content marketing, this doesn't replace the things that yep. you're doing. All those things can still be really effective. It just, it changes your approach. It's an approach that gets infused into all of those things. And it's the nature of those average. And he actually mentions this, how quote unquote, television advertising is better these days. And you know, it's a really interesting thing to me, and, and he, you know, he throws out stats like, you know, but basically uh, video ad spend has been growing, but it's only growing by about a billion to $2 billion a year, which is just a small piece of what the television advertising budgets are on, on, uh, on an industry-wide scale. But the piece that I didn't agree with, which is where he talks about the idea of television and internet protocol aren't likely to converge, and what he says is here, he says, one-third of Americans, 100 million people, don't have broadband in their home. And then I always – it's one of those things with stats I always go, yeah, but let's look at the inverse. Okay, well, 66% then yeah, do. exactly. Right? You know, right? So – and then the other thing he says is, you know, the Netflix on a Saturday and Sunday night, Manhattan buffers and slows down and wouldn't even rate as a top 10 TV network. So we still have a ways to go. And when I look at that, I go, you know what, though? When I look at estimates of Netflix and the last numbers I saw were just under 30 million subscribers – that puts them, yes, lower than HBO, much lower than HBO, lower than Showtime, lower than most paid premium cable television networks. So it's a distribution, and which is changing fast. But I look at the monthly viewing, how much people view, and it's a different way of viewing, and that's what doesn't gets lost a little bit in just looking at the top line stats. So if you look at Netflix, they average, you know, so the latest numbers I saw was a billion hours or 80 minutes per subscriber per day which means that would make it one of the most watched cable networks in the world if you adjust for the amount of subscribers that they would actually have. So it's that, you know, because when people watch Netflix, they binge watch, right? They watch two, three, four episodes. They watch for a long time. They watch a movie. They, they, They don't just come in and sit for 10 minutes and watch and then skip through commercials and move away. They actually really sit and engage with it. And I think it's a different financial model and a different media consumption model that we're going to have to watch here. And I think it's going to happen a lot faster than six years. Well, you know, I, I, I probably would agree with everything you're saying. I come at it from a different perspective, especially being in B2B most of my career where, and, and publishing, where just on the, the side of traditional media and how we've traditionally spent our money – 
and this whole thing and video and new media where it, it was a dollars for dimes thing. I mean, just look at tra- right. the traditional publishing model, the traditional media model where, oh, yeah, we're going away from this. We have this big revenue bucket of traditional stuff that we've been sending, that, that we've been selling. And then we've got this thing called digital and it's growing like crazy. But because we were giving it away at the start and we didn't know how to price it and people didn't value it. And it's just, it's still growing really fast, but it's still a smaller number off the base. So it's not going to catch up to the traditional stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that this reading, this article makes me still consider how many companies are still overweight in paid media. I mean, there, we, we talk about it all the time, right? You just mentioned it, that content marketing doesn't replace anything else, right? It can work with all the stuff we're doing, and we're trying to figure out all the right levers to pull that make sense in our integrated marketing program. But for 99% of the companies out there, we're overweight and paid, which is why content marketing is getting all this attention, because for years we've neglected it. We've neglected owned, we've neglected all our own content, and... So now it's like, oh, okay, we're getting all this attention onto content marketing. But still, when we think about it, traditional paid stuff, kind of like you're saying, like traditional television advertising, is getting the majority of this. And do you know how much the digital video ad spend has to grow to even catch up? Because it's starting at such a smaller base. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen in three years or six years or whatever. I actually don't even care. Because I don't think that in in five years, do you think we're even going to think about TV advertising versus web advertising versus the, I mean, I think we'll differentiate between well, advertising and the content yeah. we create, but I don't think about platforms. I mean, what is, are we, do we, are we even going to look at TV as TV in the next couple of years? Well, that, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, one of the things that I often talk about in, in, in talks and workshops is I, you know, there's a, you have a picture of this flat screen thing that we have on our wall and I say I ask the audience is television a service or is it an appliance you know is it you know if I if I turn on that flat screen monitor in my home and I don't have a subscription to cable or broadcast television and I only use it to watch YouTube videos and Netflix am I watching television am I watching an appliance or is it that I'm actually just watching internet video and I actually happen to be, you know, when I, when I ultimately subscribe to Time Warner or Charter or Comcast or something like that, I'm subscribing to the television service? It's a really interesting question. I think we're, 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 uh, we're you know, it's in, a, it's in a transition period for sure. The other thing that struck me when you were talking is, is that it comes right back to what we were just talking about with Forbes, right? Why, you know, when we think about it, we look at brands that are spending lots of money, in fact, 25% of Forbes revenue, coming from paid placement of content on a leveraged brand, leveraging their engaged and subscribed audience to get content in front of them. And we go, yeah, that makes sense. But then we start talking about the crazy notion of a brand actually buying Forbes and actually turning it into their own content factory and content operations uh, you know, department. And that seems somehow out of the box. And I think that's exactly to your point where there's this sort of interesting weight transition happening where brands are really trying to figure out, you know, this owned, paid and earned distribution, you know, if you will, to figure out what's going to help them fly the highest. I don't see. That's why I don't understand. And maybe I'm just being silly in general. Why is it so hard for us to make that jump to we might actually buy a media company for a brand, but it's so easy easy for us to spend tens, hundreds, million dollars on advertising? Uh, and when we're when we're just when we better uh, relate that into something sales related or some kind of value, or it's gone. Yeah. Uh, instead yeah. of building an audience, I guess the last thing, and then we can get to the the next. Uh, news item but the last thing i think about when we were just thinking about advertising spend and and some of the cool things and that we're seeing uh from creating value from that advertising is what papa john's has been doing the last couple years with getting email addresses and building an audience online for all those what's the latest one they're doing i think it's you you get uh you buy a full-size pizza you get one for Right, a buck like they had it That's in the right. '80s or when they first started. It's a their 30th year anniversary or something. And you know what you have to do to get that? You have to give them your email address. Right. Exactly. You know what they're, you know what they're <laughs> right. doing? They're building an audience. They're building right. an audience because at some point, I think that Papa John's is going to be saying, "Ah, maybe we don't have to advertise it. Maybe we don't have to do all the Super Bowl stuff, whatever, because we've got, you know, 50 million people in our audience already." That's right. And that, I, and we can focus on that. 
I love when uh, 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 Julie Fleischer from Kraft, when she talks about how she now has an audience, Kraft now has an audience that rivals the Food Network, and it's just that's just that's very powerful stuff. And and that's what we talk about with John Deere and the Furrow. Um, yeah, it, it's the same thing where you know nobody would realize that the largest circulated farming media product in the world is done by John Deere and not done by a media company. It's just for some yeah. reason we forgot that. Any, anyways, we could talk about that all, all day <laughs> long, my friend. Well, okay, so uh, on to the next story, I guess. Um, so, and uh, the, so you had you sent me this Forrester study, about the, the, uh, which I love. But it had a much more elegant title than this, but basically my, my title that I have in my notes are CMOs suck at building customer experiences. <laughs> Yeah, they throw us. Yeah, you, you, uh, you, yours was much better than I think theirs. I think there's a CMO's flunk at building brand ep- empathy, and and I'm yeah. like, I like yours much better. The, the, you know, there, there's a couple stats in here, and we'll put this in the show notes. But the thing that that I was really interested in is it said only eight percent of marketers Forrester surveyed can define comprehensible consumer personas and then identify their fundamental needs to to strategy in some way. So basically, what 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 I'm reading into this is that the majority of brands out there, majority of CMOs that are maybe talking a big game that they care about uh, the consumer experience, really don't put a formalized strategy together uh, to make this thing happen. And then they have all kinds of problems. And, and really, and then the, the, the article goes on to talk about the fact that most CMOs, their most important thing is getting new customers in the door and not satisfying current customers. What, what do you it's, make of all that? Oh, my God. It's, uh, you know, you'll get – I mean, I, this is not my rant this week, but you will get me off on a rant on this <laughs> stuff. I mean, this is, this is just crazy. I mean, there was a, there's been a, a number of studies done, uh, including uh, Accenture did one, which is really worth a download, um, and it's called Turbulent Times for the CMO. IBM did a survey. Basically, all of them coming up with relatively similar conclusions. One of the numbers that I've often been using that there's, and it just supports this finding as well, which is 80% of CMOs or 80% of marketing organizations, let's just put it that way, are still using the data that they receive, the insight that they're getting, to try and facilitate more transactions rather than develop deeper relationships with their customers. Mm-hmm. And that's just a number that's got to flip. You know, it's just, especially with all this stuff that we're talking about with audience fragmentation and it harder, you know, reach is harder than ever. And whether we're going to become a media company or whether we're not going to become a media company, we're actually going to pay our way into the, whatever the strategy is right for the enterprise. There should be no question that it's harder to actually engage customers these days. The, 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 the number of hoops and the amount of effort that it takes to attract a new customer into your product or service is difficult at best. And once we get them, we better, we better make sure that we're doing everything we can to engage them and enhance them, cross-sell them, upsell them, and make sure that they are a fully engaged, loyal, you know, what we call in the book a brand subscriber, but you pick your poison, right? Whether it's a tribe member, if you like Seth Godin, or if it's Enchanted, if you like Guy Kawasaki, whatever your metaphor you like, that's what we've got to be striving for. And this continual focus on more, short-term focus on more and more and more and more and more has just got to switch. Well, it's interesting. I, I don't know why I thought of this, but as I was reading through this article, I'm thinking about how challenging it is to create a, a cohesive content marketing strategy and a customer experience around the stories you tell if the CMO is not driving the importance of customer experience in some it's way. It's hugely important. And, and the, the, the story I'll tell, and this happened about nine months ago, I was doing a, it was an email insider summit or something like that. So I was talking to a bunch of email marketers. And I, there was this one email marketer that I was talking to that was in charge of one of the largest travel brands in the world. If I said who it was, you'd know who it was right away. And she oversaw sending the millions of emails a day out. Some of those were sales related and some of those were educational out to their customers every day. And I'm fascinated by this. I mean, when anybody sells a million, sends a million plus emails a day. I mean, that's just <laughs> that's, that's for just, real. That's for real. That's fascinating. So that's a lot of either a lot of really good stuff or a lot of interruption. So I'm trying to figure out. Okay, well, how is this working? And I asked her, and I said, I said, this is fascinating to me. I said, tell me, you create all this content for these million-plus emails a day. So you have an editorial calendar that you're creating. We walk through that a little bit and all the content they need to put out. and inter- It's international and everything. And I said, tell me this. 
how do you work with the person that is running content and social media? I mean, so, so you're creating this content. They're obviously talking to the customer directly. They have their own content strategy. How are you working? Are you talking? Do you, do you have meetings ongoing to collaborate? Are you in the same department? And I'll never forget this, Robert. This is what she said. She said, she said well, I haven't met the person running social media yet, <laughs> but it's on my list of things to do. Uh, I'm serious. Yes. I'm that is that is so I mean, you know, it's funny but it's it's also something that I hear so often this, this And by the way, this, this is yeah. a this, it's a small business and a large business. This just happens to be one of the largest companies in the world doing it. But can you imagine how are we going to be focused on customer experience if the people inside the company in these silos aren't even talking to each other on a regular yeah. basis? You can't do it. It's impossible. Yeah, like I mean, like I said, we could well, we could spend all day talking about this because I just get off on it. But the, the 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 you know the the level of collaboration, and in fact, that's what we mostly do when we do consulting engagements with with large organizations. That's mostly what we're doing is helping them unsilo, desilo, whatever you want to call it, the marketing organization, and helping them create a media focused, content focused, collaborative, uh, efficient organization that can actually do this stuff, create these content experiences that actually mean something to customers. And that's, it's just an important thing to do, whether you do it with, in concert with your agency or do it, you know, what we find mostly is, is that, you know, the, the fascinating thing to me is that most lar- whether they're large or small, it's getting done, right? That some people are doing it in the organization. And it's usually like one or two people that are doing it off in their own little corner. And they're really proud of what they're doing, but there's no massive sort of charter coming down from the CMO or the C-suite saying this is an important thing we're doing. So they're sort of doing it without permission. And that's the thing that needs to change is is that there needs to be official permission for that collaboration, that content creation, that management of a uh, a content strategy to actually happen. Well, I love, and just as a takeaway, and, and you've taught this uh... – and when I watch your master classes going through, I love the idea of, of that content ambassador within yeah, each of these silos right. where you have somebody, whoever that person, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the CMO says this is the person that's in charge of content marketing or somebody kind of takes it upon themselves to run that. And then in e- each of those silos, there is a content ambassador that sort of is in charge of, let's say, content for PR, content for for social, content for HR, for IT, whatever. And those people get together and communicate on a regular basis just so we can all get on the same page and not look like a bunch of idiots to our customers because we're telling different stories in different channels. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, and again, we could talk about this all day, but it is now time in our show for for (laughs) one of our favorite segments, of course, which is our rants and raves where Joe and I actually go off on either a rant, something that's really bugging us, or a rave that we'd just like to give a big shout out to that's happened in content marketing or similar types of things over the last week. And I'm going to go first uh, this week. Um, And mine is neither, it's neither a rant nor a rave, but it's something that happened this week that I want to talk about um, because it's actually something that really struck me um, at a really deep level, actually. And I ended up posting it on my Facebook, uh, my personal Facebook um, uh, profile, and it ended up generating a ton of discussion. I think I got 30 or so comments on it, and it was just a wonderful discussion going back and forth. Um, there's a, and the story is very quickly is that there is a, a woman, um, her name was Amanda, and she died of brain cancer. And um, another woman by the name of Shannon, who had a blog and had followed Amanda during her ordeal, and it was a very short ordeal, a three month long process here took it upon didn't know she didn't know amanda she didn't know the woman at all but took it upon herself to take her public tweets of the last three months basically starting right when she found out that she had cancer all the way up until the point the last tweet is actually amanda's brother posting that amanda had passed away and she said it to a very popular pop song which was very sad and and it was a really lovely beautiful piece put together now the woman again they didn't she didn't know her and she posted a blog post on it and it ended up hitting reddit and it ended up hitting buzzfeed and it went a little bit viral and i think even right now it's a week old so it's it's probably still hitting the virality sort of charts as it were but the interesting thing to me was 
it brings up a really fascinating question because the, the comments on her blog, of which I'm one of them, and the conversation that was on my Facebook page was really about this idea of when do we become public? And is it okay? Because some of the people on her blog were like, this is not okay. You should have gotten permission to do this. You, This is not your story to tell. This is not right for you to do this. You shouldn't assume this. And other people were like, no, this is a beautiful thing that you did. I think it's wonderful. And the woman admitted she hadn't talked to the parents. She hadn't talked to anybody in her family. She didn't know. She just decided to do it because it was something that struck her. And I wrestled back and forth with this, and the discussion on my Facebook uh, uh, profile was going back and forth, and I was playing devil's advocate a couple of different ways. And so, well, first of all, before I sort of tell you where I ended up on this, I would love, Joe, I would love to get your your, your take on this. Well, I, w- I was a lurker on <laughs> just reading the comments as they went by, and I didn't come up with, um, you know, the, the, there were a few people and I think including yourself that we're talking about I don't know if how I feel about this and whether somebody has the right to take somebody else's content but I almost thought I don't know maybe I've been in, been too deep into this stuff I think that anything we publish today anything that we do is of the of the public to do whatever they wish to do with it and I think that in the past it was just movie stars and and uh, people that were popular and today it could be all of us it could be yeah. any of us at any time that's right and this is stuff that i don't want to say that we have to expect this but i think that i would say i wouldn't be shocked if anybody took any one of our public you know facebook feeds uh twitter uh, linkedin whatever wherever we're publishing and talking about our lives that they could take this information that honestly doesn't belong to us because we are giving it to the public and somebody could do something with it. And in this case, it was actually quite thoughtful and quite interesting, I think, and compelling. But in another case, they could just as easily have tore somebody down like we've seen them do with celebrities over the years. I mean, what, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, that was what I kept coming back to, you know. So uh, Sarah Mitchell, who we both know, and a lovely woman, very smart person. Uh, she's out of Australia, actually, content marketer, had some interesting you know, she was challenging my thinking a little bit, and she writes a lot and does a lot of thinking about social media and governance and um, and privacy issues. And her point was is that you know it wasn't that woman's story to tell, and and that you know, but that we relinquished that. And her 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 big you know her her big point was, you know, that where someone like you know, because I had made the point that you know when Mandela died, tons of people did on you know did video tributes you know blog posts told his story and nobody i'm sure asked mandela's family if that was okay or you know if that was and some of them were good and some of them were not as good and and sarah's point was well mandela's a public figure and amanda wasn't and my comment back to that was but in this case she kind of was because she put out those whatever it was 37 tweets it wasn't a lot of content but then I wrestle back and forward with that, and I go, okay, well, she put out the 37 tweets, and as we have learned by in actual legal cases and, and sort of the, the – and most recently when the, uh, the producers of the movie, uh, uh, the, the, Cohen, the latest Coen Brothers movie, put up a tweet from a famous director that said, I love this movie. We've seen that the use of a single tweet can be considered fair use. Yep. But then when does your entire stream – this is a question I have – when does your entire stream become a body of work? In other words, if I look at the last year of posts and I put them together – so for example, my wife brought up a great question. She said, well, what if I told a novel through Twitter? In other words, what if I – you know, a a sentence at a time, I tweeted out an entire novel. Is that novel then – copyrightable or is it my work that can't be reproduced or have I just now spoken it in the public square and people can basically repurpose it in any mash it up and do anything they want with it it's just we're in such a weird transitional time of all of this stuff and certainly the law hasn't kept up with the technology and what we're doing here my ultimate conclusion on all of this was yeah it actually was going to be we're just going to have to get comfortable with this because whether we think it was right from a moral standpoint for her to do it, it's going to be it, – it's we should expect it because it's going to – you know, if we expect that newspapers, publications, media companies have the right to tell our story 
taking bits of our public selves and assembling them the way that they choose to assemble them, we should be okay with private individuals having that ability as well. You know, I never thought of the novel. That's an interesting that's an interesting thought. I guess I would say for any ounce of protection that we think we need, we should have them on our own channels. Let's say on our, like if this was on if this was on her blog. Right. We wouldn't be having this conversation. That's right, because if she's on if if she puts this on Twitter, actually the person that probably owns the content more than anybody is Twitter. Down there. Well, they don't, and, and 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 they, right? But they, it's an interesting thing, right? Because I actually looked into that. So, as part of the terms of service, Twitter says you own your tweets. They, but that doesn't mean anything. That's a private company saying, yeah, you, you, you. We basically we don't own. What they're really saying is we don't own your tweets. And so, so who owns the, them? Right. But I mean, so the 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 question is, isn't who owns them? Because I can own them, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean that. I have copyright over them. It just means that they don't have copyright on them. And it's a really, I mean, beyond the legal issues, it's just a fascinating thing to me as, as we start living our lives. You know, what, my conclusion was, you know, look, if we're okay, and I think many people are, many people aren't, but if we're, if we're going to be okay with being a little bit famous, you know, the sort of the thing that's going around now that there is such a thing now as being a little bit famous. Well, we also have to be okay with being a little bit covered, right? We have to be, you know, uh, with, with, um, you know, basically the consumerization of, you know, of reporting is now coming down to the individual level. Yeah. It's uh boy, oh boy. I guess, you know, we should probably look into that a little bit and and talk about it. Like as we, as we find out some more about that, I think that's going to be just an ongoing issue. Yeah, well, as I as I said to her on a Shannon on her blog, I said I think you've just put yourself in the center of an incredibly important question, and so you should expect to get a lot of inquiries about it. Well, mine, uh, I'll go with my. I, I guess uh, I don't think this is a. I, I don't want to say it's not a rant or a rave like yours, but I guess it's a rant more than anything else. So I'll just put it out there. <laughs> um, the Northwestern University, and many people know this already, has been in the process of putting out a course, a big, uh, a big online course, which they call a MOOC, called Content Strategy for Professionals, Engaging Audiences for Your Organization. There's a lot of people signed up. It's done very well professionally. You know, hat tip to them. They mention, you know, our, a lot of our definitions of Content Marketing Institute. So, you know, I've got no problems there with that. But I do, I want, <laughs> here's what I wanted to get your take on, because... You know, at, at CMI, we've been struggling with the difference between content strategy and content marketing. And I would probably say, and, and to our fault, when we started this thing years ago, we almost interchangeably used content marketing and content strategy. And I think we were wrong to do that. Um, and we've, we've since been, yep. I won't say backpedaling, but we've come out and said, and you did a great post on content marketing versus content strategy and said that they're two very different things. Content strategy is the all-encompassing use of, of content as an asset in the organization, and it fall, it's, it's bigger than marketing. Content marketing strategy is that's just when we're using content to attract and retain customers. So it's much different. Right. Now, here's my, here's my rant, and I almost feel like we should contact Northwestern University, who's doing a fine job, and they've got some really good courses here, but they use content strategy and content marketing in here from what I can tell because I, I went through the first course and I've been reading through this interchangeably, even on the front part, and I'll read this to you. Um, they talk about the importance of content strategy and then says content strategy is a conversation that provides thought leadership. No, it isn't. Right. It's not. Right. It's, that's, part, that's probably part of content marketing. Content strategy isn't just that, right? It starts with a conversation. They're almost talking. It feels like to me they're talking about content marketing or content marketing strategy are part of that. And, and am, I, am I going overboard here? Am I concerned about something that is just inside baseball and people shouldn't care about? Because right now, I feel like we should care about this because there's a whole community out there of content strategists that you and I know very well, and, and they're very passionate about what they do. And we've got a community around content marketing, and these people do different things. What, what's your take on it? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think if there's a community that should be like up in arms about this, it should be the content strategist because they're the, you know, I mean, quite frankly, they're erring on the side of content marketing strategy. And so it's it, to a certain degree, it's like, yeah, if they're going to make a mistake, it's going to be in the content marketing favor. Okay. Well, then that just promotes more content marketing than it does the overall content strategy, which by the way, I'm, you know, in full agreement, um, that it's, that it's 
that it's completely different. What I don't see happening is within the content strategy community, of, of which you've said very appropriately, they're very passionate. I don't see them up in arms about this. And in fact, on some of the content strategy uh, communities that I'm a part of, they've mentioned it. And I got to tell you, you know, if 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 they're going to protect their turf, as it were, right, you know, from the inside baseball looking out, if they they need to be reaching out and saying, no, 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 these things are different, and you need to be making sure mm-hmm. that you're doing this in the right way. So they should be they should be up in arms as well. What I have noticed, I will tell you, is that depending on who you talk to in the content strategy community, I find that they often use inner basically interchange those terms to whatever suits them. And this isn't, I'm not making a broad statement here. I'm not making a broad brush stroke here, but there are many that I've seen many times in the content strategy community when if it suits their business case to have content strategy, basically be about thought leadership and content marketing and talking about themselves and selling without selling, you know, all of the sort of tenets of content marketing, they do it because it makes a business case and they can call themselves a content strategist and get money for what they're trying to do in their business. And in other cases, I've seen many of the content strategists out there, we know them very well, who are very passionate about what content strategy, the practice, the strategy really is. And those are the people that I would really love to see go to Northwestern and go, look, we love that you're doing this, but you've got to do this the right way. And I think, you know, barring that, I think we should too as well. Well, I'm just read. Uh, I know we're way over, but I got to read this, man. It says, <laughs> right here, this is in the beginning of the course structure. Content strategy is similar to the best examples of journalism, but it is done by non-journalism organizations. That's content marketing. Right. It's not content that's exactly strategy. Right. That's right. Well, and that's what I thought when I read that. I'm like, oh, the content strategy people are going to freak at this. I mean, this is, this is, yeah. Well, content strategy people, where are you? Where, where yeah. are these people come out? I want to hear, like, let us know what's going on because you're right. If I'm a tried and true content strategist, you know, that works in these companies, that looks at content as an asset, you work with marketing people, you work with HR, you work with IT, you work with the whole organization, this is really important. You know, you've got taxonomy and governance and, Exactly. I would be up in arms. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you? So, I mean, not that I want the all you know the Northwestern people to take some heat because I think they're doing a very good service by putting this free course out there to a lot of people. But here's my concern: we're going to have thousands of people that are going to go through this course and they're going to be confused about the difference between content marketing and content strategy, and then we're going to have to go in and undo it. And it's just that's right. That's exactly right. So there that's you exactly go. right. Yeah, they do. Well, they just need to be educated, as it were. You know? uh, now I'm all hot and bothered about it. I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, why don't we move on then to this yeah. old marketing? And you've got a wonderful example this week. So this old marketing, you know, I have to tell you this, Robert, I sort of pride myself as being a history historian of, of content marketing and knowing all the different case studies of the past. And I got to give my hat tip. Uh, to let me get, let me make sure I get it right. This is on from uh, Garrett Moon uh, wrote a blog, and I'll put this in the show notes on the real history of content marketing. Does a really good job talking about all the stuff that we talk about. You know, the Furrow, the Michelin guides, Jello. Yeah. You know, we've covered most of them. He goes through it all, and and uh, I don't know if he links to us, but you know, we've been talking about this stuff for a long, long time. Here, there's one that I did not know about, and I wanted to make sure you knew about it too. This is. Our great friends at Nike, of course, Nike does some of the greatest marketing, creative work, and, and content stuff as well that's out there. But he talks about the start of how Nike got involved in, in the content marketing area. He says, in the mid-60s, founder Bill Bowerman uh, published a booklet on jogging that basically brought the sport to America. Huh. And I didn't know that. So it talks, I put the picture in there and this is great. Pro- so what, the, what happened is, is they started sending, it says Bill Bowerman and Eugene, uh, let's see, and Eugene cardiologist Waldo Harris, MD, wrote this 19 page booklet called Jogging in 1966 to help the average American get fit through running and did not mention the selling of shoes at all. Fascinating. And isn't that something? That's and, just great. And they just, just so were – and that's the purest form of content marketing, right? All yeah. they're doing is educating about here jogging is really good for you and here's how you do it. And they've got really cool pictures, which we'll put in the show notes about, you know, here's how the foot needs – it's heel to toe. Foot needs to strike the ground this way and here's why it's good for you, the effect of gravity. I'm just like blown away by this. So I just think that's interesting that, you know, 
1966. Now Nike's doing content marketing, and they didn't have any mention of selling <laughs> shoes at all, and they're just trying to create a movement around creating really, really good, compelling, informative stories. What's the, There's a great movie, and I'm forgetting the title right now, but there's a wonderful movie where they actually go back in time, and they're actually talking about the, 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 the person from the future is talking to the person in the past, and they're like, yes, people in the future run for pleasure. <laughs> they actually run long distances for fun. What is that? They, That's not Back to the Future. <laughs> I can't remember the, the movie. I, yeah. I can't remember which one it is. I can't. But um, all right, so where are you going to be next week? What's what's going on for you? Well, I'm in. Uh, I've just got some local gigs this week uh, before I get ready to head to Denmark. I think I think next Sunday for Denmark. So we'll be we'll be doing our this old marketing early, like we are today, because I think somebody's headed off to Europe themselves. Correct? I am indeed. I'm headed off to Stockholm for my second of three trips, and um, yeah, so I'm off to Stockholm today. In fact, on the overnight flight, and so I'll spend the weekend lovely Sweden in the dark because it never gets light there this time of year. So um, I'll spend there there working with a client on all things content marketing. Oh, hey, before we go, uh, I know that, I mean, you and I have been, I've been looking at the stats for the podcast. First of all, thank oh, you. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our listeners. I, absolutely. Really, we just hit over the 100 country mark. So we now have 105 countries listening to us. I would like to welcome the listeners from the Dominican Republic, the Republic, <laughs> That's awesome. the Republic of Moldova and Montenegro right. as our new listeners. <laughs> I just think fascinating. That, I just think that's amazing that we're over a hundred com- uh, countries now listening to this, and just want to thank everybody out there, and, and just really appreciative that. And we made it. We're almost, uh, you know, we're almost a neat teenager. We're at ten, so so we're getting yeah. there. Ten, ten old. The right. Deca episode. Well, that is it for our Deca episode. For Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose signing off. And remember, if you'd like your question answered on the show, do tag us on Twitter at hashtag thisoldmarketing, or send an email to thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. This was episode number 10, as I just mentioned. And if you like this episode, we hope you will consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links are on the show notes available at thisoldmarketing.com, our fancy new URL. Remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. 